ushers are at this time going to start passing out the note sheets and the pencils so that you can take some notes if you desire to during the course of the sermon today. Um, we also have Bibles, so if you don't have a Bible with you and you need one, then raise your hand. We would love to get a Bible into your hands so that you have God's Word right there in front of you. So you can um, read along as we study through Hosea chapter 13 today. We are approaching the conclusion of Hosea's prophecy, and the prophet has two goals in mind as he draws this book to a conclusion. Uh, we have one more chapter. Um, we're not quite going to get through chapter 13 today, so maybe three or four more messages before we're finished in Hosea. These two goals are, number one, Hosea must drive home the urgency of repentance. He is ministering to a people who are deeply involved in sin and need to turn back to the Lord God. There is hope for repentance, and he wants them to understand the urgency of it. Secondly, Hosea is desiring at the same time to continue to establish a hope among the people of the north, declaring the Lord's power to redeem and to rest uh, restore his covenant people. Despite their terrible track record of disobedience and unfaithfulness, he still sees the need to proclaim that God can save. And so we will hear once again in chapter 13 the warnings of life and death, serious um, concerns to the northern kingdom. And so we will see yet another glimpse of the silver thread as well of hope that is woven through the history of the old covenant as a reminder that Israel's failure to uphold that covenant will not undo the mighty promises of God to Abraham and David. He surely will secure a people for himself and he will do that uh, through the means that he has prophesied. And so if you've got your Bibles and you want to um, read along as I read out loud, this is Hosea 13. We're going to uh, look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 6 today. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen, it is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And beside me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up and therefore they forgot me. Let's pray and ask God's blessing over our time of learning together today. Lord God, we are very grateful to know you through the spirit, through the work of Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, for clarity in understanding these verses that we might think again about your mighty covenant promises and how there is nothing that can stand in your way as you fulfill them through time. You are the one who is sovereign over every day, every minute, every hour. And so we pray, Lord God, that as we look at this, this historical narrative that you have provided for us, that we might see your hand at work and that we might marvel at the ways by which you called your people to yourself. We love you, Lord God. We praise you and thank you for loving us first. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin in our passage this morning by casting our glance far back through history to a time when Ephraim was not yet on trial for this unfaithful neglect that we've been learning about through the prophet Hosea. When Ephraim spoke, 
There was trembling, says verse 1. He was exalted in Israel. So this speaks of Ephraim's power and prestige before his heart turned from God. Now, when somebody speaks and they speak with authority, those who look upon the power that person wields may tremble, noting and understanding that that person has influence. And, and that's how Ephraim is being described here. After the northern ten tribes separated themselves um, following the death of King Solomon and they formed the northern kingdom separate from Judah and Benjamin in the south, Ephraim emerged as the tribe with the most amount of influence and the most amount of sway. Now this can be, be seen as an interesting development historically for two different reasons. First of all, Ephraim was not even technically a whole tribe. It's a wonder that they rose to such prominence because they were a half-tribe. You see, before the 12 tribes were tribes, they were the sons of Jacob. You can read about them as individuals in the story that follows Joseph's storyline starting in Genesis 37. Uh, a little bit down the line in Genesis 49 when Jacob is nearing the end of his life, he called his 12 sons to himself in order to give them a special blessing. And so we read there in that chapter how he blesses Reuben and Simeon, Levi, Judah, and Zebulon, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Twelve tribes. Notice anything missing from those twelve tribes? Ephraim. No mention of Ephraim there, right? Why? Because the tribe of Levi was a little different than the other 11 tribes because God had set Levi apart for the special task of supporting the worship of Yahweh among God's people. First at the tabernacle and then later after the, the, the temple was established at the temple. And for this reason, Levi was often not counted among the 12 tribes. They did not receive a portion of land in Canaan as their inheritance as the other 11 tribes did. Their inheritance was their closeness to God by way of service to them. Numbers 18.23 says, But the Levites shall do the service of the tent meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. So we see that there's a special consecrating of the, uh, the tribe of the Levites. Now in order to maintain the 12 tribe balance that plays into much of Israel's covenantal history with Yahweh, Joseph's two sons became known as what we, we've called the two half-tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. So the one tribe of Joseph is actually split into two tribes. When the Levites are not listed among the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, you will also hear Ephraim and Manasseh listed in place of Joseph in those lists. Now here's a second reason why Ephraim's rise is interesting. First, he's, you know, Ephraim represents just a half-tribe, not even a whole tribe. But secondly, Ephraim was not even the firstborn of Joseph's sons. We, we know from, from our study in Jacob's life that the firstborn son of a family was typically given an honor and esteem above his brothers. He was worthy legally of a double inheritance in the family. And if something happened to dad, he would, re, it would assume the spiritual leadership of that household. But Ephraim was not even the firstborn of Joseph's two sons. Manasseh was the firstborn. And by the laws and culture of that time, he was beholden to esteem and honor. But in Genesis 48, when Joseph brought his two young sons to their grandfather, Jacob, in the twilight years of Jacob's life, Jacob administered a blessing and intentionally gave the greater blessing to Ephraim. 
Sound familiar? It's exactly what Isaac had done, giving the blessing of the firstborn to Joseph, or rather to Jacob, uh, before he received the name Israel. And so in Genesis 48, 17 through 19, we read, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so this serves to highlight the fact that Ephraim was blessed, but they were blessed far beyond their station. The natural order of things did not determine who they would become. Yahweh determined who they would become. Even to the extent that this half-tribe eventually grew to be more powerful than any of the other ten tribes that comprised the northern kingdom. And we've also come to know that in Hosea's prophecy, Ephraim is often not only speaking of the half-tribe born of Joseph, but to the whole of the northern kingdom. They became so prominent that the north became known in some circles as Ephraim. The undeserved favor that God had shown to the half-tribe of Ephraim was characteristic of the undeserved favor God had shown to the whole northern kingdom. God had cared for them. God had protected them and caused them to prosper. He had communicated to them by way of his prophets, given them special divine word so that they might have direction and they might not wander about. He had displayed great patience with them, despite the fact that the northern kingdom had separated themselves from Judah and Benjamin in the south and established their own king apart from the line of David. Despite the fact that the northern kingdom was worshiping in wrong places and weren't taking their sacrifices down to Jerusalem, the place that the law told them that they must go to offer their sacrifices to God, God continued to be patient with them and to give them time to repent. Considering that God had shown them such favor, the right response would have been dedication from Ephraim, gratitude and reverence towards this generous God. Uh, a couple of years back, my, uh, my little sister Chantel, she was looking to adopt a dog. And uh, she went to the shelter and one very thin and feeble animal stood out to her. This malnourished pit bull mix was cowering in the corner of its cage and the people there at the shelter told my sister its backstory, heartbreaking backstory. This dog had been found locked in a car with no food, with no water. They couldn't find its owner because its owner was a homeless woman who had OD'd a couple blocks away. She had died. So they don't know how long that dog had been trapped in the car, but it was pretty clear by looking at the shape of this pup that it had experienced a lot more hardship than just the time that it spent in that car. There were signs of abuse on this dog. It was severely malnourished. Uh, it hadn't been fed properly or cleaned. And so my sister uh, decided this was the dog for her. She adopted this dog. She brought him back home. She nursed him back to strength. She showed that pup love, showed that dog favor in a way that it had probably never experienced before. Now, he's still a pretty skittish dog, has some anxieties, but he is fiercely loyal to my sister. I have no doubt that he appreciates the better life that she provided for him. Considering that Ephraim was 
in such a lowly state, was not a firstborn, was only a half-tribe, the fact that God would raise them up in such a way and give them such power and prosperity and strength and influence, you would think that they would return that favor from God by giving loyalty to him and dedication, by staying steadfast to the covenant that God had established between himself and the tribes. And yet, sadly, before the very first verse ends in our passage today, Hosea shows us the tragic progression that the northern kingdom has made away from God instead of towards him. But he, Ephraim, incurred guilt through Baal and died. Because the northern kingdom allowed themselves to be swept up in the serious sin of idolatry, they made the grave mistake of turning their worship away from Yahweh and towards a false god. Baal was one of many false gods that the population that lived in Canaan before the Israelites were allowed to go in and conquer that land that they had worshipped. <clears throat> and because Israel was not faithful in casting out all those who opposed God from the Holy Land, because they allowed some of those residents to stay, and with them their false ideologies, and with them their worship of corrupt and, and, and uh, man-made gods, because those people dwelled by the side of Israel, some of that false worship began to rub off on the northern kingdom. Esteem does not always result in maturity. Esteem does not always result in responsibility. Quite often the one who is low but is then lifted up and sees their prosperity change, rather than producing a humble gratitude in the heart of that person who is blessed because of that shift of, of fortune, the blessed one turns <clears throat> instead away from the one who blessed and becomes proud and has a carelessness towards the one who exalted them. That's exactly what we see in the case of Israel. Ephraim had every reason to remain devoted to Yahweh who had not only kept his covenant promises to this underdog tribe, but had graciously gone above and beyond those, those promises, bringing about favor far greater than anyone could have expected. But rather than acknowledge the hand of God in this surprising advancement, rather than recognize his sovereign influence in exalting this tribe of humble means, they've allowed their prosperity to cause their hearts to grow numb to God's graces. And their greed has caused them to, to seek blessings outside of the realm of what God has decided to bless them with. Blessings from this false god, Baal. The guilt that leads to death here is not only applicable to the tribe of Ephraim, it is indicative of the whole northern kingdom. Rather than finding contentment and worship of the one true God, the northern kingdom committed an act of outright disrespect by giving praise and adoration to this counterfeit God. <clears throat> a God who was not only unrelated to the Israelites by covenant, but was also not even a real God. And so the results of this betrayal are described here by Hosea as terminal. There is a national death sentence placed upon this northern tribe, <clears throat> these northern ten tribes. Ephraim incurred guilt through Baal, and Ephraim died, which may come across as slightly confusing to us, given that Hosea has dedicated much of his prophecy to describing Ephraim as being on trial with God as the prosecuting attorney. So how can that which is dead be on trial? It seems a little confusing on the surface, but we've seen a similar use of language in the past, have we not? We think back to Genesis. Adam and Eve are told in the garden that if they eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
that they will surely die. This was the inauguration of the covenant of works. Adam and Eve both eat from this tree in disobedience to the Lord. But instead of dropping dead in that moment, they run off into the garden to try and hide their nakedness. Now, was God lying to Adam and Eve when he said that surely they would die? No, he was not lying. In fact, he had told them specifically on the day that they eat of it, they will surely die. But the death that they died that day was a spiritual death. They died in a legal and a spiritual sense by disobeying the Lord God. Their life would now be required of them and their physical being began the descent into physical death even though it would take the average human at that time several hundred years to eventually taste physical death. It was not only Adam and Eve who died in the garden that day though. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So in a very real sense, you and I, being the eventual offspring of Adam and Eve, were in the garden that day as well. That first man, Adam, was representative of every man and woman who would come after him. And so Adam played a very influential role. He served as what we call a federal head, one whose actions determine the blessings or the cursings of all whom they represent. When God made a covenant of works with Adam, Adam's accomplishment of keeping the covenant would have resulted in the blessing of eternal life for all who came after him. But unfortunately, the opposite is also true. Adam's failure to keep the law then became legally binding on every human being who descended from him. Of course, there's one exception to that rule. Jesus, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the virgin womb of Mary, was not born bearing the burden of Adam's guilt. He was essentially a new man. And Jesus took on the role of federal head for all who had entered the new covenant by faith. So just as Adam's fall, uh, failure resulted in death to all of us who are in Adam, when God calls sinners out of darkness and into light, he calls them under the new federal headship of Jesus Christ. And the victory that Jesus won by raising on the third day, triumphant over sin and over death, becomes a victory that every true believer partakes in. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks uh, of this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is he describing there in verses 1 through 3? He's describing life under the federal headship of Adam. He's describing life in the covenant of works. Since Adam failed, all who descended after him fail as well. Not only is that legally true of us, but every human being who lives also breaks the law in the exact same pattern that Adam did. But Ephesians goes on to say in verse 4, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you are spiritually alive today, it's because you are alive in Christ. You have been given a new federal headship by Jesus. And all who are under the headship of Christ through faith 
have experienced his victory in opposition to the failure that we used to experience in Adam. So the believers in, in Ephesus that Paul is writing to are described here as having been dead. When? Before they knew Christ. The deadness that Paul is speaking about did not preclude these Ephesians from acting. They were spiritually dead, though they were still physically alive. Those disobedient Ephesians before Christ, they walked in the ways of Satan. They moved and spoke and worked and ate and slept in these trespasses and sins that used to define them and rob them of true life. The course of their walking didn't follow the course of the law. They were not giving honor and respect to the commands that God had given to his people. It followed the course of God's enemy, the one through whom sin and death infiltrated the creation in the first place. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is even now at work in the sons of disobedience, Satan himself. So we are born in that natural state of fallenness. We are born in opposition to the Lord God. We are born in rebellion to the kingdom that he represents. And we are in desperate need of reconciliation if we are not going to experience the wrath of God against his enemies. These Ephesians, prior to being called by Christ, according to verse 3, lived in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So there was a type of life here. But according to Paul, it wasn't true life. It was something less than what true human life was meant to be. Last week, we spoke about being honest about our depravity and how Israel refused to be honest about their sins to the Lord God. When God accused them of iniquity and unfaithfulness, they had the audacity to argue on their own behalf and say, no, God, you're wrong. Look at all the altars we have here in Gilgal. Can't you see that we're a religious people? Despite the fact that their religion was empty and was loveless to the Lord God. They said, don't you see how here in Gilead we're prospering and all this wealth and all these resources have come to us? Isn't that proof that we are not in opposition to you, God? Wouldn't we be crushed if it was true that we were guilty of sin? So they're using the patience and long-suffering of God against him in an argument trying to prove their holiness. They were plainly disobeying God but argued against God's charges as if they were somehow innocent. And it's hard to come to terms with the truth, I bet, when the truth is that not only are you in error, but you're actually spiritually dead as a result of your sin. That's not something that the northern kingdom wanted to admit to. Israel refused to face their spiritual deadness. The covenant connection that we have to God does not determine the quality of life that we have alone. It determines whether we have life at all. If we are not connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are not believing in him on faith, then we have something like life, but it is not true vitality. And this is why Christ's atoning work is referred to as salvation. It's not just an improvement of your life. It is life where life did not exist before. It is the act of God securing for us spiritual life where spiritual death used to reign. It is not simply a matter of blessedness then, friends. Salvation is a matter of life and death. The giver of life entered into a gracious covenant with Israel. He gave them life by granting Sarah and Abraham a child, Isaac, offspring from a barren womb, right? Life from a couple who had no hope of making life on their own. Do you see how this symbolism lines up? That, that, that we have Abraham and, and Sarah who are 
well past the age of childbearing, who have no children of their own, and yet God graciously gives them life, and a life that would turn into nations, a nation that would bless nation upon nation. So he created a connection to Abraham and Sarah through covenant where that connection did not exist before. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, we read, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And this is a covenant of grace or a covenant of works? It's a covenant of works. If you, then I. In Isaiah 43, 21, Yahweh calls Israel the people who I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. So in essence, what we have here is we have a people who are made a people by the covenant of God. And he gives them this test. If you will obey my, life, my law perfectly, then you will remain in me. What does this covenant of works prove to them? It proves them that they cannot keep the covenant of works. Each successive generation falls short. None of them can perfectly keep the covenant of the law. And so God in his graciousness has a, prepared a better covenant, a covenant that is now life to us, a covenant that gives us hope because this better covenant is not based on our ability to stay in it. This covenant is established by Christ and it is kept by Christ. But thinking back again to this people of the old covenant, they were nothing but through this gracious covenantal connection to God, which he initiated to Abraham and then again later to David. They've attained new life as a nation set apart from the Lord, but it's a life that they could not hold on to. The northern kingdom has turned away from the source of their every blessing and advantage. They have neglected his authority over them and have subjected themselves to the rule of false gods. And now their decision to abandon faithfulness to Yahweh has resulted in not only a loss of blessing to them, <clears throat> but a spiritual death to this nation. Hosea in chapter 13 goes on to describe the fallout of this spiritual death that has come upon the northern kingdom as a result of their turning away from Yahweh. He says in verse 2, And now they sin more and more, and they make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. <clears throat> it is said of them, <clears throat> those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. So what kind of works do spiritually dead people produce? They produce dead works, works that are in no way valuable to the Lord God, works that have no eternal significance and cannot be pleasing to the Creator. That is what the northern kingdom is destined to produce because apart from God, apart from the source of life, no new life can spring up. The apostate northern kingdom can bear no acceptable fruit to Yahweh. Instead, their sin is multiplied as they delve deeper and deeper into the idolatry and Baal worship, which has been a snare to them. We read here that physical idols are being widely produced in the north. According to verse 2, this is not referring specifically to the two golden calves placed in Shiloh and Bethel, which we've spoken about in weeks before. You recall that there were two official idols made Golden calves that were supposed to represent Yahweh and were supposed to be a substitute so that the people of the north did not have to travel down into Judah to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. This verse isn't speaking of those two calves. Those statues were also detestable to God, but they were made of gold. These idols are made of silver, indicating that they are household items, 
manufactured and put up in the homes of wealthier Israelites who wanted to see if giving worshipful adoration to Baal would result in more prosperity to them. So the last portion of verse 2 is, is a little misleading in the English translation, and so we, we need to meditate on it a bit. It appears to suggest that human sacrifice is happening in the north, and that's not necessarily the case here. Um, human sacrifice, of course, is detestable to the Lord God. But I don't think that's what uh, Hosea is actually trying to communicate in this verse. The, the passage says in our English Standard Version, it is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. While human sacrifice was a despicable practice, and it was common among some of the pagan gods of the ancient Near East, particularly those who worshipped a god named Molech, human sacrifice was never actually a component of Baal worship. You would think that if human sacrifice is what Hosea is calling out here, he'd be far more bold in crying against it. For human sacrifice is explicitly forbidden of Israel, and it is considered an abomination of the image of God that every human being bears. But you don't see that in this passage. It is simply just mentioned. So the presence of the term for human in this particular passage is not intended to talk about the type of sacrifice offered. It is meant instead to create an ironic contrast between the humans who are doing the offerings and the far lesser creature, the created things, to whom those offerings are being offered. And so rather than saying those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves, I believe what Jose is actually trying to say here is the human who offers idol sacrifice kisses calves. The emphasis that Jose is drawing is like this. The very humans who should be making sacrifices in honor to Yahweh God, who is above them, are instead bending to kiss the inanimate calves that are undeniably below them. Rather than honor the God who is eternally alive, they're paying homage to a statue that is not only perpetually dead, but would not even be considered a work of art if it had not been for their own human hands that crafted him out of metal. Consider the utter futility of idol worship, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Wasted energy making something when things worthy of worship are not made. Only the maker is worthy of worship. You can't make something worthy of worship. God alone deserves our adoration and our praise. So idol worship is a waste of energy. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of time. It is also a waste of affections. Affections which have value because God has dictated where our affections should go. They should be directed to the one who deserves them, Yahweh himself. Idol worship is a wasting also of personal dignity. When the one creation that bears God's image and has been blessed with the responsibility of dominion over the other created things, then turns and allows what he has made himself to have dominion over him. He's subjugating the responsibility that God has placed upon man. He's letting the ruled thing rule him. Remember when God originally made man and woman in the garden? He granted them a delegated dominion. Yahweh will still rule over all that he has made, but man would be invited and commissioned to take care of that creation, to fill it with people, to look after the garden and its contents, to rule over it in a way that reflects God's rule over them. You see this in Genesis 1.26. And if you're in Sunday school class uh, with um, Ross and with Ivan, then you're very familiar with this verse. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Brothers and sisters, idol worship reverses this dominion in a disgraceful way. 
It places the creation in the position of false godhood over man. But has all of creation been made in the image of God? It has not. Only man has been made in God's image. So nothing else in creation can rightly rule over man. It is an abrogation of God's design for mankind to worship a created thing. It is utterly out of order. And it's part of the reason why God forbids the creating of, of, uh, of graven images in the Ten Commandments. For the same reason, God cannot allow man to have dominion over him. Think about this. God must be sovereign. He must be the one who's in control. We have to reject any notion that God has to bow to the will and the whim of man, that God cannot do what pleases him unless man allows him to do it. That would give to man far more power than man actually wields. Is God waiting around to see if we pray hard enough to get what we want? Is God waiting around to see if his grace will be acceptable to us and the offer of salvation will be received or rejected? If God is truly sovereign, he saves who he determines to save. He will not bow the knee to anyone. If God allowed man, his creation, to have authority over him, wouldn't that make God an idolater as well? Brothers and sisters, may it never be so. Let us rejoice in the fact that God is sovereign over all that he has made. And while people the world over will make the fatal mistake of worshiping that which is in fact below them, God will never make such a foolish error. God will not worship man. God will not bow to the whim of man. He will not let the will of man dictate the future. His decree will surely come to pass. Verse 3 of our passage in Hosea 13 today says, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Each one of these images pictures a shadow of something real that doesn't have any true substance to it. Ephraim in the north, therefore, has become almost ghost-like now. They display the appearance of life without its real substance, even the appearance of worshiping Yahweh, but the heart for Yahweh has gone. They no longer care for him and him alone. Their allegiance is spread to any God who will give them more prosperity. To try to live apart from God is to fail to truly live. And so these northern Israelites are like ghosts in his sight now. Hosea's imagery parallels the wisdom that Solomon shares with us in Ecclesiastes. Those who attempt to live apart from God will watch as their existence slowly slips away. But that is such a contrast to the hope that a believer has. The end of our lives here on earth being an event that we can anticipate with joy that we can look forward to because we know that the life that we live here in these earthen bodies is not the extent of who we are as human beings. It is a, a precursor to the life that comes. What a blessing it was yesterday to, to come to the, uh, the memorial service for Charles Bradshaw. I was speaking with uh, one of his sons and he said, you might not believe this, but Charles had been sick a bit before um, he passed away. It didn't seem like a real major thing. He had gotten COVID and then gotten better. And he was just sort of physically weak. And it was hard for him to get out of bed. And he was missing Louise. And he said, literally the day before he passed away, I would be okay if the Lord just took me home. I would be okay with that. You can't say that if you don't know that your life is resting in the hands of God. 
You can't have that attitude towards death unless God Almighty has called you friend. Charles Bradshaw is with our Savior now. We love him, we miss him, but he's better off than he was here. And it was something that for all of his life he looked forward to. He wasn't hastening the death of the physical body, but he knew that eventually there would be a glory waiting for him because of the promises that God had made. There are cultural implications of this way of looking at the world as if this is all we have. When you live your life as if it is this vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow, it wrecks the way you deal with the world that you are supposed to have some kind of dominion over. When we think of our time here on earth as here today and gone tomorrow, rather than living with our eyes wide open to God's eternal plan, we tend to treat ourselves and others as if they are disposable. Consider the ugliness of living life in the vapor, if you will. Those who forget that God has raised us up from our sin and brought us from spiritual, uh, from spiritual death to life treat life with less dignity. They not only make room for the murder of the unborn via abortion, they vehemently fight for the right to dishonor the image of God in that way. Abortion happens because people don't honor eternity. They don't care about the image of God, which is lasting and real. Divorce becomes common and flippant because I just want to be happy right now. It doesn't matter to me so much whether I keep my promises or not. What matters to me is whether somebody is plussing my life right now. And if they're not, then I'm going to move on to somebody else. That's life in this vapor, this fading. We have to grasp at whatever you can while you get because it's not going to be here tomorrow. That's not the life of one who trusts in the covenants of God. We witness the demise of true lasting friendship apart from faith in the Lord God. When you trust in the Lord, you can say, I'll see you later to a friend who's passed away, knowing that you'll be with them through eternity. You can experience the joy of having a church family come around you and bless you when you are hurting. People who are there, even when it costs them something, because they know the value of human life. They know what it means to be brought into a family and cared for properly. I love how uh, grateful Paul and Anna have been for the church reaching out to them in this past week after Paul's injury. To see the love of the church has been a great joy to them, and, and they want to thank each one of you for the way that you've supported them and cared for them and prayed for them. But in life, in the life of vapor that is described here, the life that the northern kingdom was fixed on, you're not going to have those kinds of friendships, those kind of lasting experiences, because there's nothing solid to root them in. There's no standard for love and truth that defines true relationships of friendship. Brothers and sisters, we need to be connected to the Lord God, or we will not experience life as we were meant to experience it. This vapor kind of living is symptomatic of the greater loss, that lack of fellowship with God himself. Apart with a right, from a right relationship with him, there's only synthetic, disposable meaning to life, meaning that we make up for ourselves so that we don't get too disparaged. People live for whatever temporary gods of the moment that they can craft for themselves, and that's really at the heart of idolatry, trying to make a god that will get you through now but isn't too real that he might get in the way of what you want to do later. But God desires better for his people. It says in verse 4, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no other. He points to Egypt to remind them that he is the one that redeemed them from their slavery and gave them a better sense of life than they had ever known. Verse 5, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. He provided for their needs by giving them manna and water. Verse 6, but when they had grazed... 
when they had established lands and they could grow their flocks of sheep and goats, when they could establish security for themselves and they weren't constantly needing the Lord God in their minds and in their hearts, they were filled and their heart was lifted up and they forgot me. Yahweh's response to their idolatry is simple. He declares the truth that he alone is God over man. It's much like the way he responded to them in chapter 12 when they made an argument in defense of themselves and he said, I am the Lord your God. That is the truth and that is the only argument he needs. Nothing else deserves worship for he alone is the Lord God. Whether Ephraim is willing to acknowledge it or not, there is only one. They may quote unquote know many gods, but due to their exposure to the false worship of the peoples around them in the land of Canaan, but none of those foreign gods are truly gods. And throughout his prophecy, Hosea has made an effort to reveal prosperities, potential dangers to the people of the north. When sinful man experiences blessing, the more they seem to excel, the more secure their life becomes, the danger rises, doesn't it? If they're not firmly rooted in a knowledge of where these blessings originate, then those blessings tend to only amplify, amplify our proud imaginations, that we can have some kind of good life apart from God, a life that we dictate for ourselves. We forget why we were given life in the first place, to enjoy God, to worship Him forever. So this forgetfulness that's spoken of at the end of verse 6 is not unfortunate forgetfulness. It's not that the northern kingdom had just simply gotten old and can't remember things anymore. Some of us are experiencing that today, right? It is not a consequential forgetfulness. It is a forgetfulness of intention. They are turning away from what they know. They are cheating on their history and heritage as if they have no covenantal bonds with Yahweh, like they are worship-free agents looking for the highest bidder. Whichever God can give them more prosperity, that's the God they'll make out of silver and place in their home. Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12 had warned the people of Israel of this very error. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How does a divorce from God's history of redemption subject us to futility? It's when we forget who God is, and we forget what God has done. We forget that life is intrinsically linked to Him. And with no connection to Yahweh, there is no life. I'm so very grateful that we as the New Covenant Church are not in a covenant of trial. That the trial and the test has already been accomplished. Remember, Israel was given a set of conditional circumstances. If you obey my law, if you stay faithful to me, if you walk in my ways, then I will be your God and we will remain connected. And through that covenant of law, man's failure to keep his promises was exposed. There is no hope for man to save himself or to secure salvation, even through the gracious promises of God. But because we dwell in the new covenant now, friends, the test has been taken for us. Christ walked this earth like we do. He had the same laws that he had to follow, and yet he followed every one of them. 
rather than, rather than look for, uh, to be pleased in, in ways of the world, rather than finding his contentment in the things that have been created and made, Jesus refused idolatry and worshiped Yahweh alone. And so those who have been drawn near to God through this covenant of grace can now clearly see a little bit uh, with, with greater impact what John 15 means when Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Praise be to the Son of God who has come and made an unbreakable bond between himself and those covenant people that he has called out of darkness. The one who supplies life to us, the one who is our very breath, the one who is nourishment and strength and truth for us, guides our steps and directs our paths. The people of God are not a perfect people. We have been made righteous with the righteousness of Christ, but we still fail. We still stumble. But the, the failures that we commit are not against a judge who is ready to declare his wrath on those who have broken his laws. The failures that we commit are against a father who gently loves us and cares for us and keeps us connected to him through his mighty hand. Friends, let us be comfort in knowledge that our God is a God who keeps us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this day, and we pray that as we continue on in the Lord's day, thinking of ways that we might worship you and enjoy you, Lord God, that you would give us a great rest that the world cannot give. Uh, Lord, I know Sundays are a very busy day for pastors. We get up early, we go to bed late, we've got so many things going on, but Sunday is still my most restful day because it is in you that I rest. And so I praise you, Lord, that you draw us near to you and that even in our efforts, God, to seek you and pursue you, that we are freshened, Lord, that we get to face this new week knowing and rem remembering that you are a God of grace and mercy. Help us, Lord, to consider the words of the prophet Hosea and help us to continue to be blessed in knowing that this new covenant that we have been made a part of by your grace is a covenant that cannot be broken even by our own failures. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.